there's a bit of an experiment on all sides here. My first day out after a, a recent hospital procedure, so no, I'm, I'm fine. Just, <laughs> just so this is an experiment together, including my voice, which they left very hoarse. So I hope we'll uh, hold out. So with your help. Um, <coughs> Number one. Number two is that I really hope this can be participatory. It's an experiment in the sense that some of the stuff I've never published either, I'm sort of thinking it through and would welcome your thoughts as you deal with it as well. Um, we're going to split this into two parts. Uh, the first part being the introduction. I'd like to explain what we're about to do together, and then, th then you'll do some source studying between yourselves. I would suggest maybe you form a chavruta with the person next to you or the closest one to you at, or anybody you recognize that you'd like to work with <coughs> during that period. And I hope my voice is going to hold out. Um, of course, the theme of the winter learning is Jewish renewal or the response of renewal in response beginning anew. In other words, starting over again after setback. Well, of course... I'll start with the introduction of Judaism as a religion is <coughs> profoundly connected to history. It starts with an event, the essential germinating point doesn't start literally there, but is, of course, a great historical event of redemption, the Exodus, in which you might call it already a response to renewal after a period of enslavement and genocide, Jewish people is taken out to freedom. The central message of our religion then becomes that this will happen to the whole world someday. Jewish religion that claims that the whole world will be redeemed someday. And the purpose of human life is to participate in that process of making the world perfect. What has come to be called in modern Jewish thought, tikkun olam. Judaism is a religion that says out of a partnership, we'll come back to this, of God and humanity will make the world perfect. But anytime you have a religion that believes you'll make the world perfect and the good guys will win and life will win, those are all part of the making the world perfect. Obviously in history, it's a little shaky or at least subject to argument. So it becomes a profound challenge when you run into disaster, catastrophe, setback and defeat. And along the way of our religion, uh, destruction has had, therefore, a profoundly shaping or reshaping event in the response of how do you deal with setback and tragedy. And, of course, uh, I mean, until the 20th century, the primary example of that is the Churban, the destruction of the temple, both first and second, but I'm going to focus on the second, which I believe the re Jewish renewal or response to that was a profound reshaping. What is co somewhat called, at least in academic circles, it's the change from rabbinic Judaism, uh, from biblical Judaism to rabbinic Judaism. I think a fair way of describing that is that by the time you finish the response to the Churban, uh, although the response started before the Churban itself, by the time you finish reshaping the religion to account for the Churban and to deal with its consequences, I think you have a reformulated Judaism. And my thesis this afternoon is going to be simply that we're living through the second such time in Jewish history. An event of great destruction happened in the 20th century. 
the Shoah, which I believe is greater destruction than the Beit HaMikdash, first or second, and a change of condition as sweeping as was caused by that great exile, only in this case it's a shift back toward the homeland, and the event of redemption that followed the state of Israel, again, I think has no apologies to make in the face of the Yitzhak Mitzrayim. In other words, it's, the numbers involved are greater than were involved in the Exodus. So you're dealing with uh, a secondly, a second profound, overwhelming experience of destruction and challenge. And my thesis simply is for the day is going to be that just as rabbinic Judaism followed the Qurban and the renewal to that destruction, one should anticipate no less a transformational experience in the religion and in the Jewish people after the Shoah. And I'd like to explore that with you. I don't think it's clear yet what the full measure is, but we should be looking for it. So what, what everybody should have before you is two elements. One is a kind of a chart, which I'll use again later, which I drew up kind of trying to put on one foot what it is, the overall thesis of this afternoon. And behind the chart, in addition to the, the chart, is has called Biblical Rabbinic Post Shoah. You have that. The second is a collection of six pages of sources three sources rabbinic, and three sources which are actually three pages taken from an essay which I had written in the 80s, which tried to outline some of the outline of the Jewish response to the Shoah as it had taken place by the 1980s. So again, the basic thesis of, the, of those sources, I'd like you to prepare them and go over them, is that after Churban, in addition to the renewal that must follow in issues like demographic, geographic, political renewal, the birth or the rebirth of the religion is impossible without theological and religious transformation as well. But again, these events take tremendous renewal. I don't make light of, if there's no people, you're not going to have any ideas either. But I'm not going to spend much time on it except to point them out. For example, again, the demographic renewal after the Roman destruction. Rough estimates, up to a million people were killed in the revolt against Rome and the crush and suppression of that, of that war. How many Jews were there all together? Also not clear but you could be talking with 50% of the population, not just killed and destroyed, but obviously exiled and sold into slavery and many of the other negatives. So how do you overcome such a demographic blow? Not easy, not to be taken granted. Again, to just show the comparison, the Shoah, 6 million Jews were killed. That's roughly 30% estimate, roughly estimate of the Jews alive in 1939. So number one is that itself. Think of someone chopped off 30% of your body. How does the rest of the body survive or react? And I mean that literally survive. Uh, of course, it was more than just the 30% too. Uh, another statistic which, in fact, I published in one of my writings too, the uh, Itamar Ogalenta of the, of the uh, chief rabbi of Israel estimated of the rabbis, scholars, and full-time Talmud students alive in 1939, 80% died in the Shoah. Of course, 
That's because most of them lived in Eastern Europe where 90% of the Jews were killed. Again, how do you survive spiritually when 80% of your elite or your teachers is wiped down? So it's, it's an enormous challenge right there demographically just to be physically. In fact, again, a, a story that's a matter of public record. Dietovich Lichny, who was Eichmann's co-conspirator in the destruction of, of Hungarian Jewry, uh, he and Eichmann fled after the war. He was caught. Eichmann escaped uh, until 1961, as you know. Um, when he was put on trial, he testified that the last conversation he had with Eichmann when they separated because they were trying to escape, you know, he said to Eichmann, you know, that if, they, if they'll catch us, they'll put us to death. They both knew they had committed uh, incredible crime and they would be punished. So Eichmann said to him, well, if I'm caught, I'm quoting now, I will leap into my grave laughing because, because he felt he had, he said, I didn't kill every last Jew, but he'll never recover from this death blow. He has estimated that the Jewish people didn't have the demographic vitality to survive a blow like that. And of course, Poland and Russia particularly was the biological heartland of, Amer of world Jewry at that time. And it is, in some sense, unexpected or a miracle. Of course, the answer again is that mostly thanks to Israel, that in fact the population has come back at all. So tremendous renewal demographically was needed, demanded it. One of the great powers and achievements of the Haredi community has been that demographic rebuilding at a time when most modernized Jews have followed the modern pattern, which is smaller and smaller families. Second example of renewal implied in destruction, of course, is geographic. And here again, the impact of the destruction of the Churban was loss of a homeland. That's a, again, it's, a, it's not just a geographic setback, it's a major challenge. Most religions, most cultures survive by being on their own territory. So the government, the language, the calendar, and everything else supports you. What happens when you get cut off? Well, you know, it was the Assyrian policy. Every time they conquered a country, they would exile the population. Why? Because they felt they would lose their culture, lose their religion, and they would assimilate to the Assyrian Empire. How do you do that? Again, the answer is it's a major challenge. Jews had to adapt. Jews had to develop new skills. They were peasant farmers, mostly, in biblical times. They became, as you know, among other things, uh, merchants in particular. A whole different way of life, a whole different way of surviving. But in addition to the geographic renewal, there's, of course, the political question. How do you adjust from your own country, your own decision-making, your own courts that enforce your own laws to where you are a dependent ghettoized minority that has much less control over its daily life and its daily activity. In addition to all those kind of transformations, the same challenge in reverse, post-Shoah. In other words, again, it's a struggle which orthodoxy is still wrestling with. A halakha that was not responsible for a country, for a state, you know, suddenly has to deal with decisions that can affect actual, you know, outcomes. Um, I think of it two ways, two actual, two actual stories that happen. One is the, the Lubavitch Rebbe in the 1940s, late 1940s, they brought him to Shiloh, what about the problem of the fleet, the problem of a navy, namely that ships can't turn off their motors for 24 hours Friday night through Saturday night. Uh, 
for a lot of reasons they can't, and the, the, the very capacity to exist is at risk and so on and so forth. And he thought about it and he said, you're right. The answer is Israel can't have a navy. Um, the, the second example of that, of course, is an actual story I heard from one of the founders of the Kafetz Chaim. That's the original Agura Israel kibbutz, the, maybe the only one, but certainly the original one. He told me the story when they... But it's, I meant from that world, from that community. What's that? Um, I think Shalom is the first? I'm talking about the founder of the first. So he, anyway, so he spoke at Rabbi Center when I was a rabbi there, and then after he told us the story, when they first started, they wanted to have cows, very important potential source both of income and of things. And of course, the problem immediately became... Cows, if they're not milked on Shabbos, they get sick and they die and they can't. So again, he said they sent the Shiloh to Jerusalem to their rabbis, explaining this, what do we do? The answer came back, you'll have to manage without cows. But of course, the obvious answer is that that's an answer you can give to a private club. It's not exactly an answer you can give to, um, you know, to a living country. And this is an unresolved problem. I, in the late 1980s, early 1980s, when the war in Lebanon broke out, turned out a, a, a very serious military complication. Turned out they were not prepared. Turned out the other side had much better anti-tank missiles than anybody anticipated. Um, and also, and, the, and they, would hit the, they would hit the tanks, and they had phosphorus in them, and so caused tremendous amount of burns for the Israeli soldiers, some of whom survived, but were very badly burned. Well, it turned out they had enough. They did not have enough skin for skin grass. They needed as a matter of life and death. Why didn't they have enough skin? So Gorin writes about this. When he was the chief rabbi, he gave a heter, a permission, to the Haifa Hospital and Jerusalem um, Shari Tzedek to have a skin bank against the need. But halachically, you're taking skin mostly from dead. Is a, this is prohibited unless it's pikoch nefesh. Unless direct pikoch nefesh. So, after, so when he was the chief rabbi, he ruled this is close enough to pikoch nefesh. Besides, realistically, sooner or later you'll have a rush and you can't wait. What if a war comes? Turned out that when he retired, or was left, was not re-elected as chief rabbi, the Haridi did took advantage of his absence and his successor did not put up for an argument and they pressed Hadassah to close the skin bank on the grounds that it's us, sir. You're not allowed to take skin from a dead, from a dead and use it for people unless it's pikuach nefesh. Well, when the war broke out and the emergency hit, it was too late to get skin. <coughs> they, they rushed skin from abroad. Again, I mean, he doesn't say in his in his in his Shailin Shuva how many people died until they got that skin. He himself was very very upset. Anyway, he said. This is no way to run a state. In other words, it's, it's one thing to talk about a private individual, but if it's a state, a state is responsible for the lives of its citizens. And he said the people who didn't, the people who didn't have skin are murderers. But of course, I'm just illustrating the problem or the challenge of when you change political responsibility. <laughs> since since then since then they have. Uh, Developed cows uh, as a, uh, they found 
uh, you know, Shabbos, Shabbos controlled machines, they've given all kinds of heterim. But the, my point is, they were not giving psak, they were not taking responsibility for a functioning economy, they were taking responsibility for a community. If you want to have, <coughs> if you want to have a navy, it's like there are people in Iraq to this day who don't use, the, wouldn't use electricity on Shabbat because the electric company is run by Jews and therefore they have a private generator. It's a great solution for people in Iraq, but the a whole of Israel cannot run on a private generator or on a private generator. Well, after Gorin, you know, after he came, first of all, the answer is after the, in the reaction to that, mm. they certainly did create a skin bank. <coughs> but my point only is, again, it's the issue of, okay. So this, I'm not get distracted. My point is that in this adapting to, so just as the demographics and the political and the geographic transformation and response developed after the Khurban, <coughs> so you have a similar, equal, no less challenge in the contemporary reality. So the key is beyond the political and demographic is the challenge of the religious theological, I believe. And here I come to the chart. You have the chart in front of you? And we'll see how <coughs> I hope it will help you go through the sources. Everybody got the chart? Okay. There's a simple thesis behind the chart. <laughs> and that is, I believe this is the key to the rabbinic, to the emergence and the dominance of the rabbis. Because if you look at Tanakh, where are the rabbis in Tanakh? Which book? Which book are the, are the rabbis in in the Tanakh? The answer is none of the above. None of the above. So if, if a Martian alien had landed on the earth in the first century and said, who's going to lead the Jewish people after the destruction of the temple, would not have, I think, noticed or predicted they weren't even called rabbis at the time. They even harder to call the rabbis the future leaders, but they didn't, they didn't call themselves rabbis yet. So the point of the chart is the following. The rabbis who at the time were teachers, they were not yet called rabbis, I think had one central idea that explains the development and their success in, in fact in winning and surviving and the winning out in the renewal after the destruction of the temple. The critical question becomes, how do you understand, how do you explain the destruction of the second temple? It shouldn't have happened. <laughs> Why shouldn't it have happened? That's <laughs> oh, a good thought. It's a good thought. By the biblical record, I, I, I didn't give out the biblical sources, but I, I don't know if you circulated any of the registrants beforehand. I, if you take a look at chapters 6 through 10, for example, in the book of Yahushua, or chapters 4 and 5 in the book of Shoftim, and one could go on and on, or the Eliyahu stories in the book of Kings, or for that matter, again, these are all examples, chapter 7 of Yirmiyahu. The central thesis of the whole religion is, of course, that this world made perfect, but it'll be made perfect by a partnership, by a breach, by a covenant between God and humanity. The Jewish covenant is only a, a kind of an avant-garde, or a kind of a first stage 
of this partnership, which is between God and humanity, and God, out of an act of self-limiting, what is later Kabbalah calls Tzimtzum, commits a to work with humans for this world perfection. What's the definition of perfection? I mean, perfection means a messianic age when everything is perfect. But that perfection will not be bestowed by God, and it's such a remarkable perfection, you would think only God could achieve that. The Jewish answer is no. Just the opposite. It will be achieved by God with humans, and God has made the commitment not to do it alone, not to bestow it, but to work with humans. But if you look at the biblical stage of this breed, God is very much the dominant partner. And if you look at the chart, I've tried to capture that. God is not only transcendent, a God from outside who speaks with tremendous power and lives among you with tremendous power, but a God who is dominant and interventionist in every way. For example, as the book of Yeshua says, when the Israelites invaded Israel, the land of Canaan, as it was called then, they were told, don't be afraid, God will fight for you, God will fight with you. So if the Israelites went and observed God and God's commandments and listened to God, then they won. And now did they win, but God helped them directly with all kinds of miracles. Take a look at the story of the book of the, book of, uh, of the chapter of Jericho, the capture of Jericho, the walls of this highly fortified city. The Jews didn't have enough arms to win it, but the walls crumble in response to divine intervention. And just a chapter later, when the Jews fight for the city of Ai, it turns out that someone, Achan, has cheated and taken that which is prohibited from the Shalal. So the Jews are defeated ignominiously. Their army is driven back. They're shattered. They can't figure what happened. And then, of course, they discover that he has stolen, and when he is, when he is discovered and he is punished, what happens? They go back to Ayan, they win a sweeping military victory. So basically, this is not just a partner. This is a dominant partner, God, <coughs> who takes care of everything. What you have to do is be a, compl a compliant junior partner. And the most important thing you have to do is listen to God. Book of Shoftim, when the Jews listen to God, what happens? Sends them a redeemer, savior, and they are saved. When they disobey, when they go to other gods, what happens? God sends an oppressor. Whether it's Midian, whether it's Sisra, whether it's them, they come, they oppress them. And when they are really oppressed and they regret this and they do tshuva and they apologize and they say, never do it again, God sends them a redeemer and the redeemer saves them. And this is a standard pattern. And when the temple destruction was looming, a lot of Jews said, they can't do that to us because we have God on our side. What the prophet Yumyo said is that you've got a very false notion. Yes, God is on your side, but God is on your side only when you are faithful to the covenant. And faithful to the covenant means not just that you obey God and don't go after foreign gods after Vodazar, that's bad enough, but you're exploiting the poor, you're abusing <coughs> the weak, you're taking advantage of the farmers. God can't stand that. And therefore God said, I'm fed up with this, I'm leaving this house, even though it's my house, God's house, the temple. Now why is the temple God's house? It's part of God's dominant all-powerful presence in the world. You can't approach God directly. 
you will get electrocuted. So what do you do? The answer is you go to the Beit HaMikdash, where, frankly, you'll go through all kinds of shields and protections. For example, <coughs> you yourself will have to go through a purification rite. You can't walk in with any form of impurity, because if you do, you will die. So you have to go through a purification rite. And when you get inside, you're shielded. It's like a lead shield against gamma rays, because the presence of God is so powerful that it can only be experienced directly in the Kodesh Kodeshim. And you can't go in there, because if you go in, you will be destroyed. So once a year, the high priest could go in, and he had to be pre-picked and pre... And you know what? <coughs> he had to go in under a cover of a cloud, because if he went in naked, or meaning fully exposed, he would not survive. And even with the cloud, when he came out, there used to be a big celebration... And you all sing Mari Kohen with me. I don't have my voice is gone, but you know what I mean. It was an incredible <coughs> experience. They tethered him to a rope in case he died inside. Correct, correct, correct. It's a very different relationship, as, and this is what the chart tries to capture that. What the rabbis basically said was that that's how it starts with a dominant God, all powerful highly dangerous to connect to, but you, you do connect. You can imagine, how do you serve such a God? You look at the chart. <coughs> how do you serve such a God? What's that? Obedience. Obedience. Relatively passive. I mean, sacrifice. You bring the sacrifice, but it's relatively passive. In fact, the person who brings it for you is a shield between you and God, which is very important. How to shield you're in danger. <coughs> the temple can do for you what you know self can't do. For example, all the sins of the Jewish people were loaded on the Azazel sacrifice and sent to the desert. So what you couldn't get forgiven by your own action was done for you by the power of this higher force. One of you want to, but you go to, you can go through that. So I give you a sense. <coughs> so it's it is a it's still a partnership. God is not going to do it totally for you, but it's very clear who's the dominant partner. And I think this is the key to the rabbi's breakthrough. The rabbis say that that self-limitation, the infinite God beyond human comprehension, beyond human connection, self-limited to become available to human beings. That's the first primary act of covenant. God self-limits so that humans can begin. It's like something gets a quart, voluntarily comes in a pint-sized form, so your pint-sized brain can grasp it because your brain cannot grasp a quart or a gallon. It's way beyond your capacity. What the rabbi said was, this happened a second time. The God who entered into Brit, self-limited again. This is before the destruction of the temple. That self-limit means, not that God has, so God is in a sense more hidden. In the old days, you wanted to see God. You go right to the temple, you can see it. You didn't feel it literally. You, you didn't see it literally. You couldn't see God. <coughs> but you felt it. You walked to the temple, you knew there's a God in this world. And as I said, and if you didn't watch your step and you went to the wrong place, you'd, you'd be blown apart by the power of that divine force. Suddenly, by self-limitation, it means that that's not the way God interacts with people anymore. But here's the genius of the rabbi's position. They say, you know why God has self-limited? Because God wants to come closer. 
So the hiddenness is not a distancing. The hiddenness is coming closer. So it's almost like God dialed down the voltage so you can now touch God without getting electrocuted. How do you... That form of God, that understanding of God is captured in the Talmud in the term Shekhinah. Interesting about Shekhinah? The word Shekhinah is nowhere found in the Bible. Mishkan, God is among you, is found, but not Shekhinah. So how is Shekhinah different from the transcendent male chauvinist, powerful God who, who controls your life and who punishes your enemies and who rewards your good to be... How is Shekhinah different from that? Help me out. You can, you can get, you go through the list, but you can guess yourself. What's the difference between Shekhinah and... Uh, the, feminine presence, the feminine presence of God that so, uh, moves through the midst of reality. Okay, so, so help me with all those sexist images. They're all correct. That God feminist version means... How is the feminine version different than the masculine version? Nurturing. God is now more nurturing. Nurturing, kinder, compassionate, gentler. Don't we have that all in the <coughs> It's all implied, I agree. In fact, I'm not saying it's a total invention. But it was not very visible or very clear. And that's the point. In other words, it's not totally invented. But it is certainly brought out. It's as if... The truth is, in general, it's a very good point. We have a kind of a spectrum of experience, but the dominant part of the spectrum in the biblical period is this very intervention, is very controlling. Another example is visible miracles. God does miracles in every other chapter. <coughs> if God is now self-limited, what happens to miracles? They don't stop, not yet, but what, are they, what happens to them? Sorry? They become hidden. Or you have to redefine what a miracle is. A little bit of both. They become hidden. It's obvious because the shift of the spectrum and the shift of the emphasis, that's my point. I'm not sure where the first time I... I but you'll find it in rabbinic literature. That's the point all over. No, not in the prophets. I said the closest we have in Tanakh is Mishkan... And God is Shochein, God is in our presence. It's the same idea, but Shekhinah is, you might say, the present God who is divine presence as against, I think, as against the God who is transcendent. <coughs> Actually, I think it started before the temple, but here's I get to the point. Thank you for moving it forward. The answer is, how do you explain the destruction of the temple? If you were thinking biblically, we should have won that war. Why should we have won that war? What was different about the Roman revolt that it was different about the fight with Babylonia? It was the behavior of the Jews. What happened in the fight with Babylonia? The Jews were full of idolatry. The Jews were full of all kinds of other sins. The prophet kept saying, stop doing that because God's going to reject you. But the Roman revolt was just the opposite. The Roman revolt was caused because there was a national religious revival, because people got fit, fed up with the idea that the Roman <coughs> pagans, they bring statues of the emperor, chutzpah. They bring Ivodazara right into the Beit HaMikdash as part of their power. I'm sick and tired of seeing such a gross violation. 
of the sanctity of the Beit HaMikdash, that people who are idolaters and pagans lord it over. They bring their tumor, their impurities, into our Beit HaMikdash, which no Jew would walk into out of respect for its holiness. <coughs> so the truth is people wanted, it was a national religious revival. Well, what happens if we all do tshuva and we have a revolt for national religious revival? If we were playing by biblical rules, we should have won. So how come we lost? So again, what did the Romans answer that question? When a Jew would ask him, how come we lost and you won? Well, of course, the obvious reason is the Romans had a much larger, much stronger army. It was a world power. Conquered a lot bigger countries than Israel. <coughs> but what was the Roman answer? Sorry? You can guess. What was the Roman answer? Our guard is stronger than your guard. We, had, we went through this with Carthage. We went through this with... In fact, if you look <coughs> in the late Molochim, you'll see the same issue came up with, uh, with the Assyrians when they invaded. And, you know, in fact, it's a very famous exchange. The spokesman tells them, don't be misled by your own king. He's a fool. He's telling you we can fight. And so Bobby said, look at all these cities. He's saying your God is on your side and you will, you will survive us. You'll win. Look at all these cities, uh, Arpad and Hamas and so on. Their gods are gone, they're gone, because our gods are stronger than your gods. The Romans have the exact same answer. Our gods win everywhere, and that was the general understanding then in the ancient world. It wasn't just the military armies, it was the god who in the end decided who wins and who loses, and therefore you're going to lose. Well, the Jews didn't accept that answer. They considered their gods idols and empty. How did they couldn't win? <coughs> who else gave us an answer? Well, I'll give you the Christian answer. Until the destruction of the temple, of course, Christians were mostly Jews. Until the destruction of the temple, Christians were overwhelmingly Jews. They were Jews who believed that the Messiah was coming. Okay? Or bad in their presence, maybe. So what was the Christian answer to how come the temple was destroyed? Okay, so a little later it becomes openly that way. Their answer was they themselves said, we got misunderstood. We thought that this is a religious movement inside Judaism. That's how Jesus spoke about himself. He said, I've come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He didn't see himself as a, speaking to the Gentiles. <coughs> we misunderstood. What's really going on here is that God is not renewing or transforming the covenant. God has rejected the old covenant and the new one. Here's the symbol. The central place where God connects to you is closed. It's the Jewish temple is closed for the Jewish holidays. I mean, it's over. <laughs> that was their interpretation. And this led Gentiles in particular, but even Christian Jews, many of them to decide that it, Christianity is not a religion inside Judaism, but an alternative religion to Judaism. Again, most Jews did not accept that answer either. So the majority answer was, I think probably given by the priests and the nobility, was what was their explanation? How come we lost? Well, they had no explanation. It was wrong. But their answer was, we're going to get it right back. This is a temporary setback. That's the answer. Temporary setback because we're going to win and God is on our side. And of course, the Jewish community spent the next 100 years after 70, the next 150 years, 
trying to win back the temple, including the famous Bar Kokhba revolt in 130, 132. So what was the rabbi's answer? And that's why I say this answer had started before, but it went out in the post. So the answer is, of course, the group that said we're going to get back to the temple, and that's, going to, that's how it's going to happen. Unfortunately, they couldn't deliver it. They tried. They fought the whole... They asked for revolted in 117 to back the Jews of Israel and to try to regain the temple, etc., etc. They did tremendous effort. They almost did it, but they didn't succeed. They got it for three years, but two years, not, not a permanent solution. Well, so that's a separate question. For the moment, the main point I want to make is that the rabbi's answer was, rabbi's answer was, God has done a second symptom, a second self-limitation. The God who is the dominant interventionist partner has self-limited. But as I said before, and this is the paradox and the greatness of the rabbis, not by rejecting us, not by distancing from us, God has become more hidden because God is coming closer. <coughs> and not just God is becoming closer physically, you can access Shekhinah everywhere. You don't have to go to the temple. In fact, the Shekhinah is where you are. Gemara. When you visit the sick, the Shekhinah is right there at the head of the bed. Gemara. When a man and woman make love, Zachu, if they make love properly, Shekhinah B'nehem. The Divine Presence is right there. Lo Zachu, if they don't do it, Shekhinah is not there. Gemara. When ten people are sitting and learning Torah, Shekhinah is B'nehem. When five people are sitting and learning Torah, Shekhinah is right there. When one person is sitting alone and learning Torah, Shekhinah is right there. <coughs> one could go on and on and on. The point is, Shekhinah means God has actually come closer. What's the difference? Well, again, I spelled it out more in the chart. You look at the chart itself. Again, Shekhinah doesn't operate by visible miracles. Now I come back to the, how to explain the structure of the temple. If God is self-limited and God wants to come closer, then what was the point of the self-limit? It was that the human partner, and here's the second half of the rabbi's accomplishment, God is asking humans to step up and play a more responsible role in the breach. That's the key. God's going to do less not because the covenant is over and not because the covenant has changed. The goal is still to transform the world, but God expects you to do more. <coughs> One example on the chart, you'll see others. In the past, if you wanted to know what God wants from you, how could you know what God wants from you? Before the Navi, how did you hear from God? <coughs> At Sinai, how do we hear from God? The answer is he had heavenly voices. God talks directly to human beings. You hear heavenly voices, you will know exactly what God wants from you. After Sinai, how do we hear? God sends a Navi. In other words, and what is the power of the Navi? What's the word that makes his word so authoritative, so powerful? How does, what does a Navi open up with? Either at the end he says, Noam Hashem, this is the word of God, or he says, Ko Omar Hashem. This is what God is. I have a message for you directly from God. So again, the logic, if God is now self-limiting, wants humans to take more responsibility, 
at first they didn't get it, but then they got it. What does that mean? No more prophets. No more prophets. Mm. Exactly right. No more prophets. No more voices from heaven. So how are we going to know what God wants if God's not going to speak from heaven or send us a prophet? What's the answer? So I give you, of course, the famous case. We all know the story of the Taner of Achnai. <coughs> it's a cliche almost now, right? So it's the rabbis who tell us the word of God. And the rabbis, how does the rabbi know what, the, what God wants from us? Help me out. How does the rabbi know? Okay. So the first is the rabbi studies the past record of God's revelation. God spoke at Sinai, we have that record. God spoke at Sinai, we have that record. So study that record first. Good. Then what do you do after you study that record? You use your brain, human brain, judgment. This is probably the, what God wants right now. Given that model, our situation, in my judgment, this is what God wants from us right now. So it's an interesting and very fundamental switch. Why did I say it's a fundamental switch? On the one hand, no, you're still the word of God. What's the change, though? Well, I'll give you one measure of that change. If two prophets disagree, what do you know about them? One of them is it's a liar. Not that he's mistaken or wrong. He's a liar. Because God does not speak with forked tongue. So if two prophets disagree, one of them is a liar. Look at chapter 28 in Yumeo as a confrontation. <coughs> he says, God says, don't revolt against Babylon. And the other one says, God says, do revolt. He says to him, you're a false prophet. And sure enough, within a year, he dies. What if two rabbis disagree? You're also right. <laughs> okay, now that sounds very obvious. But it was a fundamental transformation. At first, they were not sure about it. They were confused themselves. The Gemara tells the following story. At first, there were only a few disagreements. So no problem. Then, the students of Hillel and Shammai did not properly prepare. Notice they, they're saying what went wrong here. They did not do their homework. They did not properly study and follow their teachers. So the Torah became full of disagreements and it became like two Torahs. So what's the problem? We have two Torahs? The crisis. What are they afraid? The question is, one of them is a false... One of them must be a false Torah. Which is the false? Which is the false one? <coughs> What's the answer? So actually, the Gemara says they wrestled with this for years, and then finally, what happened? <coughs> Good. Hey, Reuben, thirteen. Hey, the Gemara says after three years of arguing about it, a voice spoke and said, "Both Hillel and Shammai are the worst of the living God." But what do we do? We follow the majority, actually. Now, the even more famous case, there was it took time to grasp that this is not an error because they didn't do their homework. Because if God wants you to say what God wants, you know what happens? If you ask two well-meaning, smart people, what does God want right now? Study this text and tell me what's the answer. <coughs> Very likely they'll disagree. So it's a very important delegation of authority that God says this is legitimate. They're both right, because in some sense, these are two people with good judgment can come to opposite conclusions. What does God want of me right now? So for purposes of practice and so on, the majority will follow. 
So you look at the chart, understand, but this is part of the transformation that's going on before the rise in the rabbinic tradition. Now let me go further. If human beings are to decide what God wants, and God is now hidden, how are we going to know where God is? What's that? Well, the answer is, actually, here's the rabbi's insight, and you look at the chart. The answer is, God has come close. That means God is in many more places. In the old days, only in the temple. Now, you know, the temple can only be in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, it's a local call. Remember that line? But only in Jerusalem. Now, what's the story? You can have a synagogue anywhere in the world, because God is everywhere. But, but, it's not going to have flashing lights and you walk in, you feel the electrical force that's going to electrocute you. So how do you know God is there? What's the answer? It's like I tell people, God used to broadcast on AM. Now if, you, if you tune in on AM, you're, now you're not going to hear anything. They say, well, there's no broadcast. What do you have to do? You have to get an FM receiver. What's the equivalent? So what, No, not just the rabbis. What's the equivalent for you? You have to develop your own receptors, your own understanding of how to detect the presence of God. <coughs> so what's the answer? It's the rabbis who made us into the Talmud Torah, the students of the Torah. Why? <coughs> Why do we have to study Torah? Because you could be an ignorant peasant farmer, most of them are illiterate. You go to base Hamidash, you know there's a God... It hits you like a thunderbolt, literally. But now, for you to understand there's a God or God's presence, you have to be intellectually sensitized. You have to be spiritually inspired. You have to have a sense. You have to tune in an FM. How do you do that? First and foremost, we've got to train you to learn, like the rabbis. Every past the rabbi is, that's, again, that's another example of the change, by the way. What means a rabbi and a priest? How do you get to be a priest? What course of study do you have to go through? Well, there's a lot of rabbis. Some of them do have to study a lot. Don't tell me for hundred thousand dollars you make me a kohen. I know that joke too. But tell me, tell me, how do you get to be a kohen? What course of study do you undergo? Okay. What does it mean to say somebody's genetically a kohen? Put that in theological language. What are you saying? Who chooses the spiritual leadership? God. God chooses the spiritual leadership. God decides that you'll be born a Kohen and I'll be born a Levi. Now, but what makes a rabbi a rabbi? Hold on. What makes a rabbi a rabbi? Learning. Therefore, anybody, of course, that's a false statement. I'll say to correct that in a moment. Anybody can become a scholar of Torah and become a rabbi. It's a fundamental change. More human responsibility. And that's the point. And that's exactly the point. Now what happens when the rabbis are arguing and trying to decide what God wants and they hear a voice from heaven that says, Rabbi Eliezer is right. What happens? They don't listen. Because they understand. That's the point. They understand. That's what I'm saying the rabbis genius here. They understand that in an age when God is self-limited, you don't hear voices from heaven anymore. So you don't listen to those voices. The Torah is not in the heaven anymore. Now that postage is quoted from the Torah, but the point is in the Torah you still heard the voices telling you what to do. Now you stop listening to voices. It's a new responsibility. You look at that chart. 
So there's three sources. The first you look at, the Gemara explains the difference between the first Beis Hamikdash and the second. Why the first was destroyed, as compared to the second. You'll find that as page five, in your collection of <coughs> texts. For those of you who can't read the Hebrew or the Aramaic, on the back of each Talmudic text there is an English translation. Okay. The second rabbinic text I want you to look at is the rabbi's explanation of, of, of the, how the actual process of the temple destruction took place. Meaning, it's actually, it's actually from Yuma 69b, which you will find in your sources as num- page number page number one in your sources. Okay? Um, it's marked with arrows by the side of the page, you'll see. It's about three quarters down the sheet. Those arrows, you'll read that portion of, of Yeshua ben, ben Levi. Okay? Uh, in, any event, in any event, it's it's the rabbi's explanation of how the Romans finally won. How did the Romans win? Well, you can guess the difference already. In the past, if you listened to God, then it didn't matter how many troops the other side had. For example, the Egyptians had all the troops. The Israelites had none. So what did God do? Split the Red Sea and drown the Egyptians. God did not do that with the Romans. Why not? Well, that's part of the self-limitation. The good old days when you could be totally stupid and reckless or chicken and God would save you as long as you obeyed are over. So if you ask the rabbis what happened in the destruction of the temple, for example, they tell the story in Gitin. It all started with Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. They were jealous of each other. And they follow that story. It's a story of rabbinic leadership that sees a Jew being mocked and they ignore it. Then he gets frustrated and angry, so angry that he finally goes to the Romans. And instead of stopping him or even killing him in order to stop him from unleashing the Romans, the rabbis let him get away with it. In short, uh, a series of uh, misjudgments, bad human leadership, reckless behavior, blind religious fanaticism. And at the end, God no longer overrides those kinds of things, at least in the new world. So again, uh, how does that square then with God allowing the, the temple to destroy as a second source? means a whole new relationship of God's self-limiting. The third example I have before you, of course, is you think about it. Hold on. If we no longer get saved by God whenever we're in trouble, if we no longer guarantee the miracle when we need it, so is this fair that I am bound by the covenant? I don't have any of the old rewards or protections anymore. So what's the answer? So that's what the third text tries to answer is the answer is you're right. You're going to have to renew the covenant on a new basis. What's the new basis? The new basis is you have a high level of responsibility. If you make bad mistakes, God's not going to necessarily correct them. You're going to have to figure out what God wants of you. It's a much more responsible, much more vulnerable leadership role. That's what rabbinic Judaism is about. It's a religion in which the partnership is there but as I said before, God is the dominant interventionist, controlling partner. Now it's much more participatory equality. Go ahead. Well, it's a, um, 
because when you have God who is saving you all the time from your mistakes, and God is determining everything um, in your life, then uh, there's much more incentive of hatred to work, slavery. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Maybe not slavery. I would use the word dependency. 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 And uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik, uh, you know, when I was enslaved, he said it was freedom. It's, it's basically free choice. And are we giving more free choice? Okay. So I, I appreciate that answer very much. To me, it seems to me that's the rabbi's genius to make us realize that the covenant is a way of growing into mature freedom. And therefore, in the first phase, God is much more dominant. It's like a parent-child. But when you grow up, and one of the purposes of the covenant is to help you grow up. But when you grow up, you take on more responsibility, yes, and includes consequences of your own behavior. If you act wrongly, you, God will not save you from all your mistakes. It's part of the consequence of growing up. Now, that brings me to the main point I want to present. I want to stop here and get your chance to look at the text and we'll come back and apply them to the, whole, to the Holocaust. My contention, so what, you've got the basic picture. What I have in the third column of this and the second set of sources, the, the last three pages of the sources, is what if we applied the rabbinic paradigm to the Holocaust? Meaning what? Well, that includes the following. My content, this is, again, I'm cheating you because I originally said I'll do a survey of all the positions trying to explain, the, thank you, trying to explain the Shoah. Um, I will give a very quick reference to it, but I'm basically um, turning this into a chance to explore my personal thesis here for you. But what if we apply the rabbinic paradigm in the following way? If we assume that, in fact, God self-limited again. God self-limited again, if you assume that for a moment. In fact, my contention is, as with the destruction, it didn't happen after the Shoah, it happened before the Shoah. We're talking about, I think, looking back, it seems the obvious when it happened. You can guess with me. When did it happen? When God became even more hidden and said to humans, take on more responsibility? I'd like to think it was modernity, the arrival of modernity in Jewish life. Because it's not just Haskalah. What's the great message of the whole modern culture for all human beings? There are many ways of defining modernity, but probably the most fundamental one is... Human experience is the source of knowledge. That humans, that's one example. That humans can take charge of their faith, of their history, of their reality. It's their judgment that it can explain reality and explain, rea- explain what to do. It's their ability to harness the laws of nature, the forces of nature. Let me rephrase it. For me, what modernity is about is everything the Jewish covenant promised you but you were afraid to ask for. Meaning, modernity said Jews can overcome poverty, hunger, <coughs> oppression, war, sickness, who promised that before? Who said that was the goal? That's the basic messianic goal. We're going to overcome poverty. We're going to overcome hunger. We're going to overcome all forms of doing evil. 
the day will come when they will do no evil, no harm, no oppression. The Shafat that said Dalam, the poor will get equal justice with the rich, will overcome sickness, Yeshayahu. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will dance. It's the messianic promise. Will overcome war. What's the messianic promise about war? They'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. What Adarni basically said was, we can achieve this by human effort. Don't wait for God to do it for you. Not going to happen. Don't wait for the world to come. Do it here and now. Take charge of your own fate. I think, looking back, that was a profound response to a message from the divine only wasn't heard very clearly or very well or very accurately by anybody meaning what a lot of people heard that message said God is totally hidden humans have to take full responsibility that's the message what's the answer it must be no God if God is not going to intervene even in the hidden ways we're used to so if there's no God we are God we take responsibility. That's what Nietzsche was all about. If there's no God, then if God's not going to do all these things anymore, you don't see this as a covenantal brief request. You ignore the fact, the Jewish message I would like to say is, I am with you. You're still my partner. Only I now have gotten you to a new level. I expect you to take responsibility. Which means, of course, I remain your partner. I will sustain you. In fact, I will judge you too. And you're not in charge. You don't own the world. You can't go out and say in the name of making people rich, we're going to pollute the whole, the whole atmosphere or warm the whole globe. That's another thing. So it, one side got the message of humans take charge, but interpreted to be there's nobody but humans anymore. And it's, it's completely in your hands. What happened to the other side? Well, the religious side. How did they interpret this message? Heresy or human power is an assault on God. Human capacity takes away from God, and therefore, I mean that mentality is associated with reckoning. Anytime you say that, like you can, it comes across as ceding power from God. So what it really ends up saying is that the only and look what's going to happen. It's going to lead to abuse. It's going to lead to breakdown of values. Therefore, the only way we can do is what can't become modern. We can't take this power. We have to recreate the good old days. When there was a God, when there was accountability, when the women stayed home and took care of the kids, and they weren't uppity, was we got to recreate the good old days because that's the only time, that's the only we know how to know God. And if you don't know God, you're going to have a catastrophe, which wasn't so far from the truth. What they ignored was the possibility that what's that? Maybe God really a, wanted you to take power, and B, was not going to take power for you, and if you're not responsible, you're going to have a catastrophe on your hands. I'll give you the show while, but I'll come back to that in a moment. Okay, so you'll look at that third column briefly. I'm going to give you a half hour to go through the sources. Go ahead, Jerry, ask your question. Um, the religious response No, let me no, let me rephrase that. No, no, yes and no. The, the truth is, 
there were important religious responses, that's correct, this point, that said, let's go with, let's go with this. It's part of the unfinished agenda. There were religious affirmations of modernity that try to recreate the relationship. I, I think that's an important point. I, for simplification purposes, I try to polarize it, but, but the main response, and this is the point I make, the main response, which has occurred in the last hundred years, particularly as the negative fallout has become clearer, has been fundamentalism. And not just in Judaism, but of course in Christianity and Islam, obviously, and really in every religion. So I'm saying that polarization, I think, in retrospect, misses a very important Jewish alternative message, which is that this is the third stage of the brief. So you could have God totally hidden, but what's the implication of that? You might even guess. I'm going to come back to this in detail. Quick guess. If when God becomes partially hidden or more hidden, is God more present or less present? Okay, so if God is totally hidden, what does that mean? That's what I'm going to argue. If God is totally hidden, then God is totally present. But well, how come you don't know it? How come you don't know it? Well, hold on. Well, how come you don't know it? And you're too frightened by when, when you're in the gas chamber and God is there with you. That that's the ultimate conclusion of what you're saying. Well, I think that's true. It happens to be true too. I, but I, that's but that's not it happens to be true. But I what's my application in general? Why? What happened when people tried to hear prophecy after the Churban Bayit? What happened? Nothing. There are whole books of prophecy. They never made it into the Bible because rabbis concluded they're wrong. But there were whole books of prophecy. What happens when you try to hear God through prophecy after the Qurban? You're not going to hear anything. So how did the rabbis hear God? They trained you by prayer. They trained you by learning. They prayed you to see nature differently. Look at the davening. Davening opens up by describing creation. What's the point? The point is, when God is hidden, doesn't give you thunderbolts from heaven, how do you know there's a God? The answer is sunrise, sunset. That's the first brach of Shema. What's the second way you know God in a world where God no longer is visible in the Beit HaMikdash? Look at Torah. That's the second bracha of Asalam. That's the bracha of Abar of Tanu, Right? You taught us Chukei Chayim, you taught us the Torah. Look in the Torah, you'll find God's presence right now. So before you say Shema, the rabbis were training us, how do you see God in a world where God is hidden? Now I ask you the obvious implication. I will come back and we'll discuss this in detail. I'll offer a thesis. But you can guess with me. If God is totally hidden, how am I going to know there's a God there? What's the answer? You have to develop your senses, your receptors, your insights. So we're going to have to educate you much more than the previous generation or than the previous period. In fact, you know what? Women are going to have to know, not just men. You know what? Not just rabbis, but every human being will have to be so highly educated, so spiritually trained, that they can detect God when God is totally hidden. It's an interesting idea. I'll give you another classic example of how the rabbis train us to think of God's presence. You know what they said? God is with you all the time. I'll give you an example. You're about to eat that banana. Before you eat the banana, what do you do? Where's the bracha in the Torah? Overwhelmingly, the bracha in the Torah is God gives you a blessing. What's the bracha on the banana banana? 
is to train you that before you eat that banana, stop and think, you know what? Bore priho eats. You know where this banana came from? Who made the law? Who made the rules? Who made the nature which gave birth to this banana? That gave who created the world in which animals can be grown and then they can be slaughtered and eaten? So the bracha was to train you to see God's presence in places you never realized and never thought of twice before. So my point is, so what's the equivalent today? I see two, at least two possibilities. I'd like your thoughts. We'll come back to this. I want you to get started and come back to this. For example, one possibility is that how about a bracha next time you play a video game? Next time you get sick? How about getting cured? <laughs> or how about better still? How about the doctor's about to operate? What brachas does a doctor make when he's about to operate? The doctor I guess before the operation, we'll let the doctor make it. I'll make it after when I know it's worked. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, I'm trying to get you to thinking. I don't want to give an answer right now. So one possibility, I think, is a whole set of brachas to tune you in to God's presence in places you never thought of before. Second answer is, maybe we go beyond brachas. Maybe it's a meditation. Maybe it's a sensitivity. Maybe it's a, a melody. You hear what I'm saying? What I'm saying is that the rabbis are trying to, if we follow their model, it means you can, the holy hidden God will be found in many more places that you never dreamt of. I'll give one other example. To apply the rabbi's analogy. Rabbi said, when you can't see God, you know where you can see God, in, even though you can't see God in the real world, you know where you see God in the real world? In the Tselemelokim, in the image of God. So now when you look at human beings, you have to be much more conscious that they are the image of God. So, how do you do that? How does that help you? Well, I'll give you two applications on the spot. One is, literally, there's a bracha when you see somebody who's very smart. What's that bracha? Right, right. There's a bracha when you see somebody with power. There's even a bracha for someone who's unusual looking. By looking at the image of God, you will see God if you look in a certain way. If you don't, if you don't look the right way, you won't see the image of God. You'll see a sex object. Or you'll see whatever you'll see. You'll see number 322 instead of seeing a unique human being that's someone like him. But I'm trying to throw out... If we apply the rabbi's analogy, that's one of the main jobs ahead of us. I'm about Shalom Aleichem, but I will get. I'll make. It, I mean, I mean the, the, the tefillah itself. Yeah. No, 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 no. The writer. Yeah. I agree. I agree. The rabbis put it that correct. The rabbis say that actually, right? In other words, that up to now you weren't allowed to use the name of God to greet somebody. But because, yeah, these are good examples. But again, okay, let me stop right here. I'm giving you a half hour, to, and we'll come back together. Look at the rabbinic sources, five minutes each, to get a sense of the answers. To, on, the sheet, on, the, on the chart sheet, you'll see questions to guide you to use the rabbinic stuff.
Okay, may I have your attention, please? We're going to reconvene. I apologize. I, I, lo I lost control of the time a little bit, so I'm going to try to push this a little bit faster here. Let's start with rabbinic sources. The first one, which is page five. What's the difference between the first destruction and the second, according to the rabbis? The first temple was destroyed because of Okay, idolatry, murder, and sexual immorality. And the second, translate Sinat Chinam. Okay, unjustified or basis hatred. So this is frequently used as one of these lovely, you know, we all have to love each other. I, I think it really misreads the profundity of this rabbinic statement. What's the difference between the first set of sins and the second? The first set of sins are sins against God, or against human beings too, but they're consistent in God, and therefore God punishes you. The second sin is bad behavior between people, which brings a catastrophic result. So it's not that God then sent a thunderbolt, it's that the Roman army, which was a world-class army, which actually the Jews did defeat temporarily, by the way. So it wasn't a totally one-sided thing. They were so hard fighters, they were so passionate, they actually pushed them out of Jerusalem. But they were further weakened by civil war. The Zealots, if you go back and look at the story in Gitan, the Zealots, for example, burned the stores of food in Jerusalem to force the people to fight. Or again, the Zealots forced them to fight before people were ready. Other people said, let's not fight. In fact, Rabbi Yochum and Zakai clearly said, make peace with the Romans, we'll outlast them. Yeah. So what I think it reflects, exactly the point. Now, so I'm saying, in retrospect, what I think this text is saying is that shift that I'm talking about in which humans had more responsibility, only it turned out they misused the responsibility. They, they abused... And the age when God pulls your chestnuts out of the fire, when you are irresponsible, is over. That's the rabbi's message. Which brings me to the second. Again, how did the rabbis... The second text is... is, is um, it was on page one. The opening words of the Shemon Esrei, the rabbi says, Ha'el ha'gadol ha'gibor v'hanora. He said... The Anshe Knesset Gadola, which is the beginning of the rabbinic tradition, restored these words. Why? Because God was great and mighty. That's Kibor Venora, awesome. But what happened? Why would Yumiya not call God mighty? Why would Daniel not call God awesome? Well, what's the lie? Why, why is God not awesome? Because he couldn't. God being awesome. Because when the Roman army wins, when you have a catastrophe like that, it's very hard if you're honest about God. I had a conversation with someone in the room. Well, not, I'm not sure she wants me to use her name, but so as a survivor, I lost my faith in God. I lived through the Holocaust, but I lost my faith in God. How do you respond to that? Well, this is what the Gemara is saying. The Gemara is saying is to tell God, I still believe in you as if nothing happened, is a way a lie. Now, again, it's not true. Some people do believe even though it happened to them. But for a person who, it happened to me, how can I believe in God? They took these innocent children, they killed them in mass murder. 
Why didn't you do something? Why didn't you stop him? So it's honesty to say to God, I can't talk to you as God right now. I don't feel that way. And the truth is, this is tacitly admitted in the whole Jewish partnership from day one. What does the Navi say? This partnership will make a world in which there will be no evil done on this earth. Then, then everybody will know God like the water covers the ocean. That's how people will feel they know God. When you live in a world where innocent children are gassed or burnt alive, you don't know God. You do. You can say words. You can pray to God. And I do too. But it's, it's a little gap there in reality. So in a sense, what the rabbis are trying to say is that if you take the destruction seriously, you can't use the old language of the almighty God who controls everything and does everything. And if you do the right thing, gives you what you will, what you deserve. And if you do the wrong thing, gives you the punishment. You can't say those words the same way anymore. So how come the rabbis then restore these words? So what's their interpretation of God's kibor, mighty? What's their interpretation of God's Nora, God's awesomeness? What does the Gemara say here? The Anshayim said, Adaraba, Zuhi Gevura, you know what God's might is? She koveshes yitzro, she no sein erech apayim l'rishon. This is the rabbinic statement. Ezehu gibor, hakoveshes yitzro. You can think of might as I can punch you and knock you out because I'm world heavyweight champion. I'm a bulvan. What's the second form of might? I control myself. So the rabbis are saying we're living in a world in which God <coughs> controls God's self. Not like in the good old days when every time a bad guy came along, God swatted him away. Unless you acted badly, in which case God swatted you away. <laughs> we're living in a world where God's might is shown that you have to grow up now. Why? Because if I believe in God and I joined the covenant because I had the world's heavyweight champion on my side and everything I needed I would get if I listen and I suddenly realize I'm living in a world in which it doesn't work that way and I am more responsible than I thought you might be tempted to walk away unless you yourself grow up and say what? God's self-control allowing the Romans to win is not all bad because why? because I understand the flip side of that is God said you me, I, everybody in this room, you're responsible. So, again, what would have been responsible in the first century? They might have not gone to war with Rome. They might have waited them out. What would have been responsible? To have made sure you don't have a civil war. Maybe we would have had a better outcome. Etc., etc., etc. So then the rabbis say, but if God's going to let the bad guys win and not make visible miracles, how we know there's a God in this world? What's the answer? The to the Gemara here. Where is God's awesomeness shown if you don't see miracles of the good old days type and if the bad guys win? The answer is, you know what his Nora is? Il mole moroshel koshborchu. If it wasn't for awesomeness of God, heach umu achas yecholos kayem ben almost. How could this one nation, it's one little people survive surrounded by all those enemies. Okay. So he's trying to say, don't look for the proof of God in visible miracles in that the good guys win all the time. 
Where do you look for the, what's the proofs of the existence of God? Well, of course, I mentioned the rabbis gave other proofs. They said, look at nature, study the amazing, intricate beauty of nature. They said, look at people and see the divine qualities in people. That humans are capable of knowing there's something greater than themselves. But here's the third way the rabbis are saying. Look at the Jewish people. Its existence is the most incredible statement against all odds, against all logic, against all power, that there's a hidden force here, the hidden force which is sustaining them. So that's their second answer to the question. So we move from a world in which we know there's a God because God knocks off the bad guys to a world in which God allows greater freedom, including the freedom of the bad guys to do better, but raises us to the level where we understand. Now, by the way, neither we nor God have given up on this dream of getting knocked off the bad guys. We're still trying to make it a perfect world. But we understand now we have a high level of responsibility and we don't have the papa who writes the big check when we need it. You're going to have to, be, have to make an honest judgment. Can I afford this? Can I do this? Do I have the resources they build? Okay. The third Talmudic statement is, but there's a change of the rules. So why should I live by, at Sinai, why should I live by Sinai? We're not living in the age of Sinai where God doesn't speak from heaven anymore. Where God doesn't make miracles that guarantee the bad guys will lose. So why should I observe Sinai? So what's the Talmud's answer in the third source? The Talmud says openly, in retrospect, Sinai was coerced. Why was Sinai coerced? It's not coerced. What's the most famous line that you said at Sinai? In fact, if you look, it says it twice there. So what do you mean this was coerced? So why was Sinai coerced? What's that? Yeah, but I'm saying that's a nice medrash. But what is the medrash referring to? What, what's changed? What makes Sinai coerced? <coughs> you lived in a world where God was audiovisual, right? Do I have any questions? Look at those miracles. What kind of question do I have? Of course I have no question. So in retrospect, that was coerced. Listen, I took you out of slavery. I defeated the Egyptian army, which could have killed you. I fed you manna. And now I'd like to make you an offer. Will you listen to me? Well, what do you think? You know what? Maybe it occurred to the Jews. And if we say no, how are we going to get back from this desert here? How do I get out of here? Uh, maybe maybe we won't have manna tomorrow morning. So it doesn't mean that literally. In fact, so what's the Gemara's answer? No. Yeah, you would be exempt by this logic from Sinai, but what's the answer? Then we're not exempt from Sinai. Why not? I'm sorry? No, the, the, the Gemara gives an answer. Hadar Kiblu, Rava says they accepted it again. They re-accepted. What was that basis of that? Look at Look at uh, page three. What is it? What's the basis of that? Kimu v'kiblu means what? The Jews upheld and they received. They upheld. They had already received it, and they accepted it again. Where is this verse taken from? Kimu v'kiblu. Someone. Megillat. Purim. Megillat Esther. So what's the Gemara really saying? When we lived in the good old days, Pesach, split Red Sea, uh-huh. killed the, the firstborn, sent all those beasties, sent all those bugs to bug the Egyptians. I mean, it was, of course, a different... Of course we accepted it. What kind of question? But we don't live in that world anymore. What world do we live in? 
You know, the world of Esther, what's the world of Esther like? When they wanted to wipe out the Jewish people, did God split the Red Sea and send Kasperish uh, uh, over the mountain? What happened? How did the Jews fight back? So Mordechai and Esther played politics, some of his bedroom politics, some of his regular politics, and they won. So what is the Gemara saying? Who made that miracle that they were saved in the book of Esther? According to the book of Esther, who made that miracle? Is which, which chapter is God mentioned in? Well, of course, you all know exactly the point. This is the only book of the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned. And what's the point? Okay, so the Gemara is saying in the first stage of the covenant, Passover is the proof of God and of our covenant. And we accepted it because of the Exodus and because of our capturing Israel. In the second stage of the covenant, God is totally hidden. So why do we accept the covenant? We could have said, you know what? The rules are changed. It's not binding anymore. What do we say? We understand the new rules, but we accept it. We accept it again. The new rules are, so the Jewish people grew up. In the first phase, they had a guarantee. In the second phase, you have much less of a guarantee. But you know what? Instead of running for cover, instead of saying, it's too risky, they had a good right. Listen, think about it. They were almost put to death. I mean, it's nice to know they won at the end, but it's not a great fun, right? You know, it's like hitting your head against the wall. It feels so good when you stop. But it's not a great, it's not a great thrill to know that by the... What if Achashverosh had been looking the other way when Esther showed up in court? Yeah. What if he had? What if he had a bad night? It was up the night before he had, so he fell asleep the next night and he didn't wake up in the middle of the night because he was tired or he drank too much that afternoon. What would have happened then? I hate to think about it. What's that? It's not recorded. They prayed. You said they fasted. That's true. Okay, fair enough. Good. The Jews had to participate. They fasted. Esther did her thing, Mordechai did his thing, and they won. No question. No, but I'm saying it's a major maturation of Jewish responsibility. And the Gemara is saying they reaccepted the covenant and it's binding today because we're living in a world in which, you know what? If you do your share and you do the right thing, you will be saved from genocide. Which brings me to what I was wondering to spend the rest of the time on. I come back to my contention. We're living in a world in which God now is totally hidden. Now, again, what I mean, what am I totally hidden? I'll give you a simple example. Totally hidden. Again, I'm trying to follow the logic of the rabbis. But, I, but it, there's a basis of this. I'm not just saying words. What does it mean God's totally hidden? Well, I'll give you one simple example. The average Jew in the rabbinic period felt that sickness comes from, comes from God in what way? If you took Lush and Haro, what happens to you? You get leprosy. Okay. Now, frankly, most of us are trained because we went to university. We don't think that you get leprosy if you took Lush and Haro. And most of us, the truth is, even the Haredim, even though they don't recognize it themselves, don't go to pray for a miracle when we get sick. You know what we do? What's that? What do we do? We make the Shabbat. We, 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 we,
you make you make only mishmerah. That's all you do. Yes. No. Most of us try to get the best doctor we can get. And if, I mean, if you're smart, in fact, there's now a whole Karedi network whose main purpose is to make sure they can get the best doctor available. So, despite the claim that they're living in the other world, because the Karedim still insist that God rewards and punishes, and it's all sickness, it all comes from God. Despite that, they're not acting that way. Their words are contradicted by their behavior. We live in a world, most of us really believe that, in fact, cancer is not a punishment. And I know people, what did I do wrong? But most of us have now been trained, thank God, in my judgment, that cancer is not your punishment because you didn't, because the mezuzah wasn't, most of us don't believe anymore, that the mezuzah in Malot was not proper. And that's why the terrorists got in and killed 20x school children. Again, I'm not trying to deny there are people who believe that happened that way, but and, and maybe many Orthodox Jews have a kind of a built-in, we picked this up as we grew up, but nevertheless, I'd say most Jews, even Orthodox Jews, sort of recognize that it's not true that if you have a perfect mezuzah, you'll be protected against the terrorists. <coughs> That's when by God is hidden. This is not a negative, I see this as a positive. What's the difference between the two? It's obvious to you. Why do I say this is a positive and not a negative? So, so why do I relate to God? Why do I love God? So the honest answer is you can say it two ways. One is, you know why? Because frankly, because if I don't listen to God, I'll be punished. And really, I will get cancer if I don't, whatever. And if I don't put on my tillin every day, this is going to happen to you or my child. My child's in the army. And unless I really keep every last bug out of that broccoli, God forbid my child will get hurt. What's the nature of that relationship with God compared to somebody who doesn't believe that? So why do I believe in God? Why do I relate to God? Why do I put on my tefillin? So I'm serving out of love and out of partnership. The love is God sustain me. The love is God stood by my side. The love is, the truth is when my child, I had this experience, yeah. you have, right? The child who has cancer, it's, a, it's one of the worst moments of your, you can imagine in your life, right? But if you're lucky at such a moment, you feel you're not alone. <coughs> it takes some of the pain out of it. Or worse, if you lose a child. It happens the other way. Still, if you, if you feel you're not totally alone, it doesn't help a lot, but it helps a little bit. Yeah. Okay? So again, that's the reality that the Talmud is trying to move us to it, and that's what I'm going to come to in that. So if you're living in a world where God is totally hidden, could there be a world where God is more totally hidden than in the Shoah? Again, I can't imagine a world where God is more totally hidden. Because right? if there's a God, how could they be murdering people? There's the human beings are the image of God. How could evil guys be ruling over the world? How come God didn't send a thunderbolt to stop them? I have no answer, of course, obviously, nor am I offering you an answer. But now I'm trying to understand it from perspective of the Brit, of the covenant. And I started to say before the break, so that I'm trying to understand the, apply the rabbi's model here. We live in a world which God had asked humans to take full responsibility. Not to quit on the Jewish partnership dream of making the world perfect, but for humans to take total responsibility. And find the logic of the rabbis. When God is totally visible, humans do very little. God is partially hidden, 
because God wants humans to step up and take on more visible responsibility. Well, what does it mean when God says, I'm totally hidden? What's my answer? Because he wants humans to take full responsibility. Now I look back at the show in the following way. I hope no one interprets this that I'm explaining or justifying the Holocaust because as far as I'm concerned, I've never gotten over that feeling. God should have stepped in and changed the rules. But God didn't. So I'm trying to understand that. So again, I'm skipping what I could have told you about. After the shock of this sank in, you get the whole range of theological responses in the Jewish tradition. From the Haredim, who overwhelmingly, not all, thank God, but 95% say, Torah always said so. If you sin, you'll have a tochecha. And if you look at the tochecha, it says the worst thing. They'll kill your kids, they'll, they'll torture you, you'll, the days will be miserable, worse than that. So Haredim basically said, this is the punishment for our sins. Of course, you ask, what sin is this a punishment for? So it depends who you ask. So to Satan Rebbe, what was his answer? The punishment for Zionism. They should have waited for Mashiach instead of waiting for Mashiach. They tried. Zionism is a sin. The nations punished us. We broke our promise to God. Igmore mentions that we swore to God we wouldn't go to Israel until the Mashiach come. So it's, so it's, a, punishment, it's a punishment for the Zionism. Okay, what's the answer of most of the other Haredim? What's it a punishment for? No, the Jews, no, no, thank God for small favors. That's not trivialized, bad enough. The answer is modernization, secularization, assimilation. This is the standard thing. Assimilation. The Jews try to escape God, and it says in San Yecheskel, God said, you think you'll escape me? By fury I will rule over you. It's the name of a book. Isaac Breuer, who's again one of the greats of the, uh, of the, of the, of the Haredi world and the most moderate and responsible, says, he quotes that verse. He said, after all, you know, if you will not be Jews by choice, by voluntary choice, God shall rule over you with fury and hatred. Well, here's the, you're all trying to escape in Germany and become fully echt German, so by flame and fury, God pushed you back into being a Jew. You don't listen. You're, you're not a listening, so I'll inflict all these horrifying curses upon you. That's how they apply it. Very straight. Okay, so now here's a point. Good. So my answer personally is quite good. So this is the, this is a, this is for me one of my turning points. It's exactly the point. I woke up in the morning and said to myself, I mean I couldn't sleep all night anyway, but I was up all night. Think about this. I said, Do I really believe at the peak of Auschwitz, right? They were, the gas chambers were full. They wanted to save a little money on the gas. So they took piles of kids. They said, They took piles of kids. They loaded whole trucks with kids. They dumped them into the pits, into the burning pits alive. They thought they'd save a few bucks on the gas. Now, so that's my, that was my turning point. I said to myself, do I believe that God brought this upon them because of the assimilationists, because of the Reformed Jews? That's Emmanuel Jacobitz said that. Reform is partly because... So, do I believe that? Then I said to myself, and if I believe that, would I listen, respect, or obey such a God? I wouldn't. I mean, such a God I would spit at. What would, what would you do? You tell me. Honestly. You think a God who would do those kind of things, who inflicts those things, because, because, what, because we didn't keep Shabbos, because we didn't keep kosher, because we didn't keep mikvah, 
talk for itself. He doesn't talk for itself. Illustrate the precise. Good. I have that problem too. So but the talk. My answer is uh, good. So my answer is the first. I said. I'm not going to accept this in my reality. No, I start with that. All honor to the Tochecha, but I'm not going to apply it to my reality. Now, what I've tried to offer this afternoon, and I've been working on it for 20 years, is maybe the answer is there are stages. And there was a stage where Tochecha reflects what God is doing, but I can't believe for two minutes that God wants this or does this or inflicts this. Okay? For what sin, again, I keep saying, what sin could justify such a behavior? Such a, so again, if you have a sin... That, we'll make it short. Go ahead, sorry. I mean, you talk about degrees now. Any illness, you say the exact same thing as you say. You begin with time. Correct. You start talking about numbers. One, two, no, six no, million. No. Mean, it's the whole combination. It's numbers, it's intensity, it's the cruelty... It's all the above. You're right in one sense. This is the, the famous point in Dostoevsky Brothers Karamazov. If one child tortured and dies innocently, it's a problem. And of course, my answer to that is that's the Jewish answer all along. That's what Navi, the Navi said. As long as one child is tortured, you will not know God directly. You will only know God partially. Through a veil is the language that he used. Or you will know God intellectually, but you won't know God in your gishkas. Because as long as they are torturing or as long as someone is dying of cancer, you know God only limited, in a limited sort of way. Not, it's a verbal, it's an intellectual, it's a affirmative, but it's not gut. It'll become gut only when we cure, when we stop war. It'll become gut when they stop torturing innocent children. But what's my point? That's exactly what the Jewish breed is about. That we will know God when we, when we not only become full partners, but we achieve what the partnership is all about. And until then, we know God, but we know God in this partial way. It's a partial way. So again, that's my answer. I'm not trying to coerce you into accepting it. That was my turning point. Now again, I have to say, there's a whole range of Orthodox explanations, non-Haredi, that try to deal with the same problem that I did. Eliezer Berkowitz, if you read his book, Faith in the Holocaust, that was his comment. This is my break. This is my limit point. Red line. I will not. If, I, I reject the idea that it's punishment for sins. Again, it's not easy to say because, after all, it's it's a standard belief which has had much value and much power, much of behind it. He said, "But I'm not going to say this." So, what is his answer? His answer again. This again. Jewish teaching teaches God, the spiritual world, and in the end, that means the physical world, the political world, the material world can be temporarily at least won by evil, and they can do these things to us, but we outlasted the evil, and we still have a spiritual dream of this perfect world, and we'll go on with it. So, if you will, our survival is our answer to that question, and God is with us. Or again, I give you Rabbi Salavitchik's version, which is Hester Panem. God is hidden. The Navi speaks of a time where God is, hides his face, leaves evil run loose, in the world. So it's not that God inflicts this or wants this or approves this. God has hidden the face and evil runs rampant. So we live in such a time as a terrible time to experience it. So the basic second answer was, of course, one that I, of course I share 100%. Of course, my argument, as you realize all day, has been that the Hester Pana may not be a form of rejection or distancing. It may be the opposite. It may be a form of coming closer and asking us to take responsibility. 
But I understand the logic of what he's saying. Norman Lamb has written the same argument about Hester Putnam as an explanation for it. And of course, Alvechik's second answer is, in the time of Hester Putnam, I felt God's presence again when? In the rebirth of the state of Israel. That's his cold of That's the classic answer. In other words, it was, I did feel hiddenness. Actually, I suspect him that he felt more than hiddenness, but Alvechik had not, some, not so brave sometimes in thinking the full, in expressing the fullness of what he intends. You read it carefully. I've often thought about it. In that essay, he starts by saying it was the time of Hester Ponem Muchlat. So I've thought about that a lot. Hester Ponem Muchlat. What does Hester Ponem mean? God is hidden, lets the world run for evil. So my question is, what does Muchlat mean? Muchlat in Hebrew means absolute Hester Ponem. It's like Hester Ponem squared. So I understand Hester Ponem, but what's Hester Ponem squared? Okay, I mean, so I'm saying, I'm trying to understand it to this day, but in my heart of heart, I became suspicious. What he really meant to say is, it hit me so hard that I felt like there's no God in the world. That's Esther Pana Mufla. That God was absent. I'll take over your answers. I'm just trying to get back to my... So that's his... I'm going across the scale. Now, next to moving across the scale toward... uh, The next part of the scale is uh, people like Fackenheim, who basically argues, Emil Fackenheim, who argues, well, God appears in history. We experience God in the events. So as the Jews experience God in Yitzhak Mitzrayim, as they experience God in the destruction, <coughs> I experience God in Auschwitz, not saving me. That's true. But what does God do in Auschwitz? God is present and says, don't surrender, don't give in to this. Or as he put it, the 614th commandment comes from Auschwitz is live. Don't give in to these people. Live on. You know, do carry on. Carry on with the mission and the covenant. That's Fackenheim's answer. And again, we're going down the scale. We go to the next one over. Of course, the next one over is Greenberg. Who, uh, this is my, uh, Greenberg in the 1980s who basically said maybe the answer is the covenant is broken. Why? Because again, it haunts me. Why didn't God step in and stop it? Can't understand that. There was no matter what. That's the minimum I would have expected under these circumstances. So I said, maybe the covenant is broken. Now, having said that, but I said, but I know that's not true in the following way. Why is it not true in the following way? I look around me. All the Jews are living by the covenant. So how can I say the covenant is broken if the covenant they're living by the covenant? So what was my conclusion? So my first attempt was to say it was broken in the sense that, yes, part of the covenant is God protects us and we protect God. Of course, I didn't say that. First, Wiesel said that. Um, it's in that page. You look at it more carefully. as a classic quote. Why is Purim different than Hanukkah? You know, why is Purim different than Hanukkah? Because Purim is, Purim is obviously because he said on Purim, they try to wipe out our body. So we... we um, you know, we were saved. We were saved. Um, I'm sorry? We celebrate, we celebrate with things of the body, right, right. He said, but, he said, but in this case, he said, we're living in a time when, oh no, because that was part of the covenant was, when we're endangered, when we're endangered, God will save us. And Hanukkah, when the Torah is endangered, we will fight and save it. So on Hanukkah, we, 
we celebrate that we saved the Torah, we saved this. On Purim, we celebrate that our, uh, you know, our body was saved. The catch with that, he says, but it looks like for the first time in history, it's broken because, in fact, we weren't saved. So here's what I get at. This is, a, this is the, the key point for me. The Gemara said the Jews re-accepted the Torah on Purim. It's just an amazing step. It's a re-acceptance of the whole covenant. But why? My answer is obviously it's why because we were saved. Kimu Kiblu, they were celebrating Purim. They were saved. So how do you live in a world in which you weren't saved? That is what haunted me. And what's my answer? I don't have an intellectual answer, but what's the real answer? Did the Jewish people walk away from being Jewish? Did the Jewish people stop being religious? Did the Jewish people stop being... Yes, there are some people who lost their faith because of the Holocaust, and I honor them. But the bulk of Jews... It's the opposite. I, for many years, I was, I was... I ran an organization called Cloud. We work with Federation Jews. I would talk to these people. It drove me crazy. It, not drove me, it, drove, it inspired me, but it drove me crazy. I'd go out to lunch, and i say to him, what made you become Jewish? he said, say, you know, he said, I was, I was totally assimilated. I said, so what made you become Jewish? He said, well, I served in the army, World War II, and we, we went into the camps, and I saw these Jews, and I felt this instinctive feeling. I need, he, they need me, I need them. I, I, and not one person, a hundred people, a thousand people told me, it drove me crazy, because I kept saying, if I was an assimilated Jew and someone came and said, you know what, if you are Jewish, they're going to take you out and they're going to kill the last person and burn your kids alive. You know what I would do? I would, I would go to Australia. I would take faith papers and pass. You know, after the war, they estimated 25,000 French Jews did that. They gave up being Jewish. They took out false papers and they passed as Catholics. To this day, I meet people, you know... I met people who did that. that. Lou told me this story when she was good. My wife was giving a lecture one day. She was raised in a, I forget what, Christian religion. She went to college. She fell in love with this Jewish boy. She came home and she told her mother, I'm sorry, marry a Jewish boy. I'm going to become Jewish. Her mother fainted. Why did she faint? Because they were both Jewish. The parents were Jewish. They decided they're not going to expose their child to... This so they went off, they passed, and they were hiding all these years. Madeline so, so my, Madeline okay, Albright. so now I asked myself the obvious question. So my answer is, what did the bulk of Jews? Do? What did the bulk of Jews do? Did they go off and take false papers and go to Australia? The they did the opposite. Why? They so, had well, first of all, I'll go through that in a moment. So the the central point I want to make is that the overwhelming bulk of Jewish people instinctively said. I re-accept the covenant. Even though I know I have much less protection than the guys who re-accepted it at Purim. Now, of course, the most powerful way they said they re-accept the covenant, you know how they said it? In 1948, the Yeshua decided we're going to set up the state of Israel. And, and you, you probably know the story. It's, this is not my made-up story. America put a lot of pressure at the last minute. Israel should not declare the state. Right? The Arabs announced that the state is declared they're going to invade and destroy it. So before they went ahead to do it, Ben-Gurion met with the generals and said, can we win this war? We lose this war because they can invade us. What are the generals saying? <coughs> what? 
the generals said, you want our honest military opinion? We're going to lose if you declare now. Maybe you should wait <coughs> until we have a better shot. And then they, he said, I, I don't think so. And they said to him, well, if you allow for the fact that they're not so well organized, if you allow the fact that we're going to fight much harder because they have no choice, maybe you could say 50-50, maybe. Probably not, but maybe 50-50. So what was Ben-Gurion's answer? Can't wait anymore. Can't wait anymore. Now, why couldn't he wait anymore? So my answer is, I would like to suggest, now speaking theological language, because Ben-Gurion, of course, not a theologian, and he's not a formally religious person. What was Ben-Gurion saying? He was saying two things. Number one is, the Jewish covenant is not over. It's got to go on. Number two, but in order to go on, you have to have power. Because if we don't have power, they're going to wipe us out. Now that brings me... And of course, what's the risk of taking power? They might wipe you out. When you have power, and you're living in a world where it's not guaranteed, they might wipe you out. But what's the alternative? Either you walk away from the breach, or you walk away from that responsibility, and you try to escape the danger that way, or you do nothing and you get crushed that way. So the choice is, what's your choice? Now this sounds like politics, but it's theology in the most fundamental way. I come back to my image now. If it's true that 500 years ago, 400 years, God said humans take full responsibility for the covenant, now I'm looking back and saying the following. The Holocaust. What if in 1800 or 1900, when Zionism first started, what if the overwhelming bulk of Orthodox Jews, there was, that was the 90% of the Jewish world in 1800, 95%. What if the overwhelming bulk of the Orthodox Jews said, God wants us to take responsibility, go back to Israel, let's go. What if um, half a million Jews or a million Jews had gone back in 1800, 1900, or 1900 to 2000. How many Jews would have been in Israel in 1939? Would they have had their own state? Could they have taken in the other Jews before they would? How about in 1939 when Hitler was still willing to let them go if someone would take them? Okay. Now, that's number one. Now I say, thinking back, what if in 1931, the German citizens who were afraid that the Depression was going to wipe them out, inflation was going to hurt the savings, would have not panicked and would have said, okay, it's a hard time, but I'm not going to vote for a politician who we all know is a gangster. He'd been in jail. He was a thug, surrounded by thugs. I'm not going to vote for him, particularly not because he's going around speaking hatred against the Jews. I'm going to vote for a responsible party. But they didn't do that because they were panicked economically. Okay. What if in 19... Th I go through the whole list. In 1934, a group of Protestant people were very angry that Hitler was taking over the church and imposing Nazism, they had serious discussions to assassinate him. And you know what they decided? It's usser, because under Lutheranism, you're supposed to obey the, the government, respect them, and even if they are ordering you the wrong things, you have no right to kill them, you have to submit. You don't cooperate, but you submit. Okay? Now, 1935. In 1935, Hitler decided he wanted to take over the Rhineland, the Rhineland was part of Germany that was removed at the Treaty of Versailles because the Rhineland was industrial production. They wanted to make sure Germany will never again be industrialized, mechanized country again. So he wanted to take it over, and he had a meeting with his generals. The generals said, under the Treaty of Versailles, if we take over Rhineland, 
the Allies have the right to step in and remove the government and punish Germany. And then he said, and? And they said, we don't have an army strong enough yet to resist the Allied armies. Wait three or four years. We'll have an army strong enough because they were rearming to resist. The, so don't go into Rhineland now. Wait three or four years. So guess what happened? So Hitler went in. The Allies did nothing. And the general who I'm quoting here in his war crime trial said, we never argued with him again until 1943. Well, this man is like, you know, he's like a prophet of God. He knows what's not on the military records. He understood, okay? Now I could go on and on. What if in 1938 when Germany said, take, take those refugees, the Allies had met and take refugees? What if in 1939, I'll give you other examples, the simplest example. What if the neighbors of the Jews in the Holocaust, like the Danes, had said, these are not Jews, these are Danes, and you can't separate them from us, and we're not going to let you take them away. It wasn't just the Danes who said that. The Bulgarians said that about the Bulgarian Jews. The Nazis ended up not taking the Bulgarian Jews. Incidentally, <laughs> Bulgaria was rewarded by Nazis. Bulgaria was a German ally by giving them the province of Thrace from Greece. Thrace had 12,000 Jews. The Nazis said, we want to take them. They said, take them. They're not Bulgarians. So those 12,000 went to Auschwitz. 50,000 Bulgarian Jews were protected. Well, you get the point. What if the Allies had announced in December 1942 that you'll be held responsible for your crimes against the Jews? They actually had an announcement. You'll be held responsible for crimes. They didn't mention the Jews. Guess why they didn't mention the Jews? Because they thought it wouldn't play well with the public opinion. December 17th, they put out a statement, the St. James Statement, warning the Nazis to stop their war crimes. But they didn't use the word Jews. Why? Because the Polish government in exile was told that if you use the word Jews, the Polish population will, will reject you. They are already cooperating with the Nazis because they want to get rid of the Jews. What's the Jewish survival rate in Denmark? 98%. What's the Jewish survival rate in Poland? 90% die. In Lithuania, 95% die. What's the difference? Because Lithuania is anti-Semitic. They start killing the Jews before the Nazis as soon as the breakdown of the old government takes place. Well, you get what I'm saying. What am I saying? What if the Allies had bombed Auschwitz or the realized Auschwitz? The answer is a colossal breakdown of human responsibility. What if the American Jews had campaigned and carried on and driven Washington crazy so they'd intervene. So my first comment, therefore, is what makes the catastrophe of host possible in a world where God wants humans to take full responsibility? A catastrophe of this size is made possible when there's a total breakdown of human responsibility at every level. Okay, now my second answer. So that's, again, it seems to be in accords with the theory. Now I want to apply the rabbi's model to our situation. If this is correct, that explains why God doesn't intervene and save them. But, so where is God during the Holocaust? If God is not stopping the Nazis with thunderbolts and lightning, what is God doing? What's that? Presenting opportunities which man did not take. Okay, but now what is God personally doing, so to speak? Follow the logic of the rabbis. When God is partially hidden because God wants to come closer, so if God is totally hidden, where is God? 
totally attached to the, Jew, <laughs> the Jews. So where is God during the Holocaust? My answer is in the gas chamber. That's where God is. Where else would God be? You understand? In the crematorium, in the burning pits, that's where God is. It says, What's the difference between a human being in the gas chamber and God? I have no idea, but I have one thought. God has infinitely more capacity for emotion and pain and suffering than us, right? The Gemara says, if a human being has got an ache, God says, have a splitting headache. So if a human being is choking and disintegrating and involuntarily defecating and strangling in the gas chamber, how does God feel? I can't imagine, but it's, uh, the answer is um, multiply that by a thousand or five thousand and you begin to have a sense of what the implication of being a member of a partnership is. Why am I doing it? So I will never have an answer to that. And I said at the beginning, I'm not going to try to answer that question. It remains a problem between me and God or to anybody who thinks seriously about the whole God. Having said that, what else can I say? So I say my next answer is, I've come to accept the hard, painful truth that we have reached an age where God operates through humans and humans can do miracles and can bring the Messiah and can bring the perfection and God wants this and God will help us. Help us. And it's important to know that God is with me because otherwise I will think God is not with me. And what happens then? Then the people who mean well become destructive themselves. That's one of the problems. In other words, it's a mitzvah to make a world richer world, to give people jobs and dignity. Never had before. It's a mitzvah to cure diseases. It's a mitzvah to bring, to overcome war. People are doing that every day, trying to. But when you lose a sense of partnership, what happens? It goes out of control. So one of the lessons of the Jewish people here is, as a partner member, you have to take power, but you have to understand it's God's world, not yours. So you have to treat the world with respect and not exploit it to the last, the last drop of oil and poison the environment and pesticides. You have to increase the production of food without... Okay, you with me? So that's, again, the Jewish people is to me the classic model of how you respond. They understood to take power. So take power means politically... Was it mean we created the state of Israel? By the way, it took American Jews another 30 years after Israel until they got the message. Was it mean to take power politically? <laughs> it means not only that Israel has the strongest army in the Middle East, that's why they've won every war so far. That's why they were able to save Syrian Jewry and bring in Arab Jewry and bring Russian Jewry and bring in Ethiopian, Ethiopian Jewry. And now India. Okay. That's number one. Number two, that's the political response. What's the demographic response? Again, you create life. The overwhelming response of the Jewish people was to create life. You don't stop living. Now again, I have to admit it, in the Warsaw Ghetto in the last few months, there was a whole doctor study done in the Warsaw Ghetto by the Jewish doctors in the ghetto. They felt they're dying. They shouldn't die in vain. Let people learn medically from our lesson. For example, they have studies of starvation you could never do that ethically, but they saw people starving. So they try to s save future lives by recording what, how you deal with starvation. Well, so at the end, the last months, they estimated that the death rate outdid the birth rate 40 to 1. Because people gave up. But after the war, <laughs> what happened? The answer is there was a Jewish 
population explosion. Not nearly good enough, not good enough, but an amazing response. Not only creating life, but enhancing the quality of life. What's a Jewish life worth? Well, during the Holocaust, it was worth next to nothing. The Nazis tried to make it cheaper and cheaper to kill Jews. Right? So what did the Jewish people do after the war? Created thousands of institutions to make life more precious, to give it more value, to spend more money on it, to spend more effort on it, to save it. This is now, so let me finish by trying to apply the rabbi's model. If God is more totally hidden and humans are more fully responsible, what follows from that? Number one, according to the rabbis, it's an expansion of Kedusha. It's an expansion of holiness, which I take to be the presence of God. So where does it expand? So help me. So the answer is there's no place where God is not potentially possible. So it's not just in the yeshiva. It's not just in the synagogue. It's literally every other place, but you have to tune in. So again, I, I think some of the most amazing holy things being done in my lifetime, done in hospitals, done in medicine. They save lives. They make miracles every day. So again, I ask you, when God is totally visible, we have visible miracles over our nature. When God is partially hidden, we have hidden miracles. When God is totally hidden, what do we have? What's that? We have totally natural miracles, and God operates through human beings. And it's a miracle. If you didn't see it, it's because you're looking in the wrong way. That's why we're living in a time where, truthfully, it doesn't happen that if you make the mezuzah straight, the kids are protected from terrorism. You know what the miracle is? What the Shabbat has done in keeping... I mean, what happened the eight days with Gaza now? Think of the kind of intelligence they got under the most impossible circumstances that they ended up killing 120 people, less than one civilian per fighter. And these were people embedded in the heart of civilian territory, under a normal army like the American army, the ratio is three and four to one, and that's before you embed. So how do you account for that? The answer is, it's miracles of courage, of bravery, of human intelligence, of risking their lives to get this information. So what you're talking about, literally, is human miracles on a scale, not because they're human miracles. What's the definition of a miracle, then, according to what I'm trying to say? What makes it a miracle? A, it's in accordance with God's purposes, which is life, dignity, value. B, it's done by using natural laws, which God creates. It's God who created a world in which certain genes make certain things express, and if this gene breaks down, it goes out of control, and it becomes unlimited growth, which is cancer. But it's a miracle if someone can figure out how to correct that gene and get the growth back under control. So you can be God's partner here. Guess what? That's what God is asking you to be, to be a doctor. But I'm just talking about a doctor, but how about you name it? If we're going to overcome poverty in the Messianic age, how can I be God's partner? So this is all religious work. How can I be God's partner to overcome poverty? Create jobs. Create jobs, create technology. Create jobs that are true malacha. If you ever now go back and look at the laws of Shabbos. What's the definition of malacha? It's not just any drudge work. What's malacha? Malacha mark shevet has to be intelligent, purposeful, creative work. 
not destructive work. It has to be kayama, it has to be permanent work, not schlock that falls apart in five minutes. It has to be, you name it, that the dignity of the worker is part of the malacha. So, in fact, what I'm saying is we're living in time where you get a major expansion of halakha if you do it right. I'll give you another example because it's a family favorite. Following the rabbi's logic, the second thing they concluded was we can bring the Torah closer to its goals because we have more responsibility. So, for example, they said the Torah compromised with slavery. Not because the Torah likes slavery, but because everybody was practicing slavery. So the Torah put a limit six years on Hebrew slavery. Right? Next, so I said, bring the Torah closer to its dream where every human being is in Selma Kim, they're all equal, they're all free. So what do you do? The answer is you've got to give the slave better hours, shorter hours. You've got to give him better food. You've got to give him equal treatment with the master. Of course, at that point, the rabbis made a joke. If you buy a Hebrew slave, it's like buying a master because you've got to treat him better than the master. And you know what? They weren't satisfied. They came back and said, even so, slavery is only true when the jubilee is in existence. Since Yovel doesn't exist, we're in exile. Slavery is no longer valid. Now, what's the application for today? So I give you the following thought. Maybe the answer is, the Torah compromises that women are less than equal. Even though they'd sell a Kim. Is that possible? Okay. Right, right. Now, the Torah compromise. But if we have full responsibility, maybe that means we have the ability to move it closer to the goal. So, of course, I didn't think of this. The rabbis thought of it before me. For example, they created a ketubah. For example, I'm quoting, of course, from Blue Greenberg's writing. He said they created a, a written get instead of an oral get so the husband couldn't simply dismiss her. And the point of the ketubah was to protect her in case you do give her a get, she has to be financially taken care of. So what's the next step if we have more authority? <laughs> Maybe we can overcome our guna. Maybe we can make women fully equal. Maybe we can have a woman rabbi. I don't know. What do you think? I'm wrestling with the token. Okay, okay. He's back. All I'm saying is, it's up to you. I, I don't have the answer, I'm, but I'm convinced you're going to have a major expansion of halakha. And the direction is toward a closer realization of the goal. Anything that overcomes poverty or hunger. I'll give you one other example. Kosher. The point of kosher food is that when you eat, you show respect for life. Believe it or not, it's not just that God said don't eat shrimp because God has a thing, because God is a crab. I mean, God is against, God is against us having fun eating, eating seafood, right? So what kosher is about, as Rav Cook said before me, as Rabbi Salvation said before me, is it's about recognizing the idea that you shouldn't be eating meat because you're killing living things. In a perfect world, you'd be a vegetarian. In an imperfect world, we permit you meat with restrictions. That's what kosher is about. So why is veal kosher? Good. So there you gave me a guess. So now we can look and say, if we have more responsibility, how do we expand kashrut? Well, one example is this. Even if you slaughter it, and even if it's the right kind of animal... You shouldn't be allowed to raise, like veal is raised, where they're totally crippled and they're kept totally in confined. So even though it meets the technical past kosher, we're moving, we're expanding kosher. Okay. How about that the organic or forms of agriculture shouldn't violate nature? How about 
that if you don't treat the workers who do the shechita and the preparation properly, it's not kosher. In other words, you're expanding to everything. Again, you help me. I mean, otherwise, I'm, I'm saying it's a wide open field. Everybody can go make your own. I said, either you help me write new brachot, or better still figure out what goes beyond brachot. What goes beyond brachot is attitudes. What mental preparation do I have to do before I do this? Before I, before I go to my law firm today, I have to stop and say, Hashem, you are the one who looks out for the poor or for the weak or for the oppressed. May I walk in your footsteps. I made that up. What about <coughs> a doctor? Before I use my hand, keep it steady. Before I uh, go to sleep and say, take two tablets and call me in the morning, give me the energy and will I love this person so much that I'm going to get up and go look at them. Maybe I need really some personal attention immediately. I don't know. Is this an attitude, a prayer? A so, to summarize... The rabbi's model is tremendous expansion of God's presence, but you have to tune in. Tremendous expansion of halakha, but you have to see every aspect of life. And, right? Tremendous expansion of leadership. I said before, it was a lie, that the rabbis went from the genetically chosen priests to the anybody-can-do-it rabbi by study. And I said, why was that a lie? It's true. Why was that a lie? Because they only did it to 50% of the population. So maybe our contribution is we do the other 50%. At least if we follow the rabbi's model, we should be looking for expanded leadership. Maybe it's totally democratic. Maybe we hear from God. Now in the old days, we had prophet, true or false. The rabbi said both. How about, what's the equivalent when humans have full responsibility? How about we have pluralism for people who are mistaken and wrong? Unlike Hillel and Shammai, don't believe that God or the Torah is sacred, divine, but <coughs> when humans are fully responsible, you have a much wider range of pluralist choices. So my time is up, and I, I, was, I will stop here, but what's my basic conclusion? My basic conclusion is twofold. That the Jewish people, in its life, <coughs> paradoxically, how do you know when God is totally hidden? Uh, it seems to me the way that Gemara answered that we saw in the sources today. The Jewish people is the witness, not only by our survival, but by our experience, that we tell people that partnership, when humans are in partnership, they're healthy, they function better. When they are cut off from partnership, they turn pathological and destructive. That having been said, we also tell the rest of the world that God does not want you to rely on God or wait for Messiah, but God wants you to take full responsibility and you can show how to use power like Israel does. Israel shows an amazing level of attempt to protect civilian life during wartime. Israel, with all its flaws, I think shows an amazing level of how you take care of minorities. And one could go on and on and on. So, we're living in a time when the covenant is renewed, but my paradox is true. It's being renewed under less, much less favorable circumstances. So if you choose to renew the covenant, to me it's a statement of maturation, responsibility. In fact, I'd like to think of it as love. Because if I didn't love, 
why would I be willing to take all the, this risk? You have to love life. You have to love your fellow Jews. You have to love God. But if you love, you're willing to do it not just because of reward and punishment, not because of guarantees, not because it makes me superior. I love because love is its ultimate reward and purpose of life. So in a certain paradoxical sense, we live in the most vulnerable, but the most promising and the most loving age of Jewish history. Thank you. It's part of an article. It's part of an article. And where can you get the rest of the article? That's a good question. Okay. Thank you. Oh, okay. We can get it from Drisha, yeah.